You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage, and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips. We have trainings, exercise. We do research. And in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts. And also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Welcome, everybody. This is uh, Alan Garfinkel, your host for today's episode number 101 with Eve Ewing, who's a remarkable woman who has been on the back of a mule to see some of the largest prehistoric paintings in the world to the Sierra de San Francisco in the Grand Canyon of Mexico on the peninsula. She is a joy and you can just feel her passion. Well, hello out there in Archaeology Podcast Land. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, with the California Rock Art Foundation. And we have a very, very special guest, one of my uh, greatest friends and collaborators, Eve Ewing, known as Eva de la Cueva. And uh, <laughs> she will be t- talking about her experiences studying rock art uh, intensively with the Grandes Morales of uh, Sierra de San Francisco. Eve, are you there? Yeah, I am. Wonderful to connect. We've been attempting to do this on and off for quite some while, and now you're just on the tip of the hundredth and first episode that we're doing, and I'm I'm just blessed and honored to have you as our guest scholar. Well, wonderful. 101 happens to be the highway nearest to me, parallels I-5, and that mostly is a continuation of El Camino Real, from San Diego, clear up to San Francisco. So I'm honored to be on 101. Fantastic, Eve. So this is Eve Ewing. Her background is uh, in in sort of the study of, of natural history and prehistory and, and also expertise in climatology. I'm going to ask you the million-dollar question to open up. Tell us a bit about your background and how you got involved with the study of uh, Native people, archaeology, anthropology the study of rock art, and specifically your hyper-focus on the great mural rock art in the uh, heartland of Baja, California. Yes. For a focal point, I will talk about the South Gallery of Cueva Pintada. But for now, how did I get into this world we're in? My goodness. I was born and lived on a farm in Dutchess County, uh, New York State. And during World War II, My father had to go or volunteered to go into the Navy because he knew how to navigate from his summers in Maine. And my mother was a great farmer type, and she took care of the farm while dad was at the war. And no one knew if the Germans or the Japanese were going to land in America. Her job was to keep the farm going. And that meant us kids, really, 
we had the free reign of the farm. We did have a nanny that checked in on us once in a while, but she was told to basically leave us alone and let, let us roam. And so we roamed the meadows and the forests and the barn. I got to be friends with all the animals. And so in a sense, because my mother didn't have time to really be there for us and my father was gone to the war, I really bonded with the land and the animals and the trees and the birds It was an elm tree I'd come out and hug every morning, for example. I'm a real tree hugger from way back. (laughs) (laughs) And, And then all the mystery of the birds, of learning how to lurk slowly through the forest until you could see the bird that was singing behind the leaves, the big leaves. And then you would just wonder and wonder, like the hermit thrush. Oh, my, what a lyrical, wonderful song. So anyway, eventually... My father was transferred to California, to San Diego, to finish out his term in the Navy and t- towards the end of World War II. And I took a terrible emotional landslide after moving away from the farm. And the East Coast is very flat, and uh, but forests and meadows and things like that were wonderful. So slowly what happened is I began to transfer my the love of forests, it was into the desert and into the backcountry and into the sense of something wild and something far beyond the ken of man. It just was a wonderful experience. And my father became an ocean, oceanographer at Scripps, and he studied the currents and all kinds of things from the air, and I began to be able to, in 19, I think about 40, 53, We began to go down whenever he had a spare seat in the plane, when he didn't have a script scientist or somebody with him. I'd get to sit in the back of the plane and flying over Baja just fascinated me Mm. because there just wasn't anything there. Mm. I mean, there were the road hadn't even been finished yet. It was just a dirt track in in the wilderness and and as Anita Espinosa in El Rosario used to say, she was at the end of the the first part of the highway being built, some there was two, you know two hundred fifty miles below the border, and she said, "Hmm, good people, bad road, bad people, good road, <laughs> bad people, good, yeah, bad yeah, people, people, good, good road. road, yeah." Because when they finally finished the highway in about nineteen seventy four, then you had caravans of stolen cars and and all kinds of stuff going down the peninsula. But anyway. So when did you make your first trip trip into Baja? First trip into Baja was probably 53 on from my dad's airplane. And we would land on the salt flats. Oh. Of now, the largest town in central Baja, California. It's, it's uh, well, it's north of San Ignacio. Okay. And north of Vizcaino. It's Guerrero Negro. And Guerrero Negro was the name of a British ship that would hide behind the land points and wait for the Spanish galleons to go by uh-huh. and rob them. And only this one sank. And it was called Guerrero Negro means the black warrior. Wow. And so that was, uh, okay, the, the, the highway finally went through there. So in 1963-64, long before the highway was ever built down the peninsula, the peninsula by Crow is about 800 and some miles. By road, it's about 900 and by 900 and something, um, uh, roughly. And by trail, it's it's well over 1,000 miles because you're switchbacking forth up and down mountain passes and all kinds of things. So the milling expedition went from Tecate to Cabo San Lucas in 63-64, and I joined the trip in Bahia de los Angeles in January, right after Christmas, uh, 1963, turning into 64. And I got to join the expedition. And that's when I saw my first rock art. It was about three months into the expedition that, anyway, we when we got down into San Ignacio, that's when we went up to the Great Merrill country. We were planning to go into to see the great murals of Cueva Pintada. Ah, because the article that came out in 1962 where Earl Stanley Gardner 
was flown down into the mountains and uh, then helicoptered down and flew past the uh, paintings. You could see him as you're flying down the canyon. Wow. And he was so excited about it that he called UCLA and got Clement Meegan, Professor Clement Meegan, to go down there with him. And that's the first Western introduction that wasn't just local local cowboys living and ranchers living in the mountains. So that was a ma- that was a major discovery and sort of an unveiling of this yes. area that heretofore would be is rel- was relatively unknown, wasn't it? Totally unknown, mm. except for during the French occupation of the Baleo mine outside of uh, Santa Rosalia, mm-hmm. the French, it was copper mining town, and it was founded by the Rothschild family. The local ranchers are the ones that helped the, the company decide which ranches in the area would be good to uh, grow food for this burgeoning mining town. Mm-hmm. The, they were they were called the Baleo Ranch my, Mining uh, because they provided the food. Mm-hmm. But on the Melling expedition, you see the reason that no one knew about those cave paintings from the outside world much. A few people did, very few, is because the wagon road, any kind of a road, had to stay on the lowlands, and there's no water in the lowlands. Mm. So therefore. Unlike Northern California, where when the Portola and and Sarah expedition arrived in San Diego, they just went up the coast because all the stream beds that were rivers like the San Diego River, the San Diego, the rivers, they came all the way out to the ocean. So you didn't have to be in the mountains. But in Baja, if you wanted water, you had to trail up in the high mountain country. And that required mule expeditions. There was no water. Everybody in their early pioneer times of Baja were terrified of the Vizcaino Plains. There was no water. There were herds of antelope. But other than that, they just, you know, they just wanted to stay out of there. That was a death sign to try and grow. And that's where the highway goes. The highway goes right through the Vizcaino Desert, and stays along not too far from the coast. And so the mountains were the were the hidden places, and that's where people could live year-round, was were in the mountains, where the water holes, they were water holes and springs, a few springs, a few tiny little streams. So it was something else. So then when I got back from the Melling expedition, we, we got as far as a couple of, of caves, but then we had to go back because Andy Melling said, look, our mules have enough strength to either go into the cave painting country north of San Ignacio here or Cabo San Lucas, but we don't have the strength for them to do both. So we opted to stick to our, our trail. When I got back, but we did go and see a couple of paintings up the Arroyo Paral area and then turn, had to turn around and come back. So we got to see just how rugged that mountain country is. It's all lava basalt, which is very hard and tiring to walk on. For animals, for people, it's just just very, very hard. So we had to turn around and, and, and go back and leave the mountains. And I could well understand why very few people lived up in them. But slowly they were settled by the descendants of the original soldiers that were brought over by the missionaries in the San Ignacio Mission Area in the center of the peninsula were ranchers with names like Arce, Via Vicencio, Rodriguez, a few, but they were not more than five families, but mostly Arce's. And Harry Crosby, when I got back from the Melling expedition, I got a call from somebody I'd never heard of named Harry Crosby. And he said, I just understand you got back from a long meal trip. Well, it took the Melling expedition six months to go the whole length because the drought that was down there and losing animals and all kinds of things that happened to us. So we made all the mistakes for the next people to come along. And I just told Harry, Harry, the most important thing you need to do is to find a local guide. Don't go in the mountains without a local guide. <laughs> and they'll know where the water holes are. And, and if you don't know where they are, you're in trouble. So he did. And 
He thanked me for it profusely. But he came out, of course, with the wonderful book on the rock art of Baja California. And he spent a lot of time off and on years of, of work went into it and exploration. And he did the footwork to go into these incredibly difficult canyons and up these amazing passes. And the Grand Canyon of Baja is where Cueva Pintada and Fletches and the great, the heartland of the great mural country is in that canyon and the other canyon, which is San Gregorio, which is the first cave he ever saw. His his description of Cueva One in San Gregorio is just elegant. It's just the way he described it. He said this cavalcade of of animals, forty feet high off the some of the, and galloping out of the cave. What on earth? They're all <laughs> galloping out of the cave. Let's stop there. Okay, uh, and uh, we'll we'll pick it up in the next segment. Thanks, uh, gang. See you on the flip flop. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully, it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back, gang. We have Eve Ewing with us talking about the great mural rock art in the Sierra de San Francisco on the peninsula of Baja in the nation of Mexico. Eve, tell us a bit about how you perceive and process the rock art, a little bit about the the work that you've done down there and the writings and publications that you've done and the documentary film and the whole, the whole package. Just give us some insight about the way in which you analyze and uh, consider the nature of this, these images, okay? Well, to continue with my background, having uh, sort of uh, my sister and brother and I, we just sort of raised ourselves on the farm. When we came uh, west, what, what I brought with me was my tremendous love of country and how it how much it meant it meant to me. And this gave me an advantage because Indian people are born, live, and die in their land. And they know it so well. I mean, I just know a freckle of what uh, they went through. But it led me to major in biology and with an emphasis on ecology, which is the study of the interconnections of the natural world. And then learning how to observe, if you're observing a cave or you're looking at an animal, a painting, and then you look at the cave it's in, and then you look at the outside of the cave, and then you back up even more and you try and figure out why is this place chosen. And sometimes it's it's possible to know, and sometimes it's, it's not. But my first introduction to the Great Mural Caves, the Big Cueva Pintada, was amazing. We took us, uh, in those days, three days to get down into the, the canyon, sometimes two. The first day would take you from uh, San Ignacio to El Represo, which was a ranch up on the top of the pass. And then the trail came down, El Represo, and if we were lucky, we would get all the way to Cacariso in the next day. But if not, we would be camping somewhere in between. Cacariso was named after a, a rock, which it's, it means the pocked tooth or something like that, pocked face or pocked tooth. That's a, a mesa in the mountains um, that when you're camped down at the base of it, you're camped along the stream that comes out of, out of uh, the uh, rock art 
of from from the mountaintop up above, which is Agua Verde. It's the tallest mountain there, and I think it's where they perceive the gods of rains lived. There are stories that there are. I never got a chance to go up there, but there are rock art cairns up near the top. So my guess is that's one of the ways they hunted mountain sheep was to flush them up to the top of the hill, top of the mountain, and there would be somebody waiting to uh, uh, hunt them. But Agua Verde is where the clouds in the summertime gather, and you know the rains are going to slowly, slowly build and slowly come out from there. Okay, my first introduction to Quintana, we first went to Cueva Fletches, which is quite an amazing site. And I think one of the important things is that each cave has its own flavor. And it would be sort of like if you went into the, the mission in San Ignacio, which was built with all these paintings and, and gilded and, and statuary of the, the Catholic religion, so if you had a hurt knee, you'd go to one saint. If you were wanting to do something else, you'd go and pray to another saint. But it was all built for visionary education, not people who were literate. The same with the paintings in Baja, California. And I think like you would go in, in the church in San Ignacio, you'd go to one station that had a certain amount of saints there and you knew who they were and you'd pray and talk to them. And then another time you'd go to another station somewhere else. So that way you'd, you'd know how to pray for what you wanted and hoped you could get. And I think there was really no difference between both of those cathedrals, one to the Catholic Church and another to Native Indians, were all for people who are nonverbal. In the, okay, so there's that overview. Then we know something, too, about the, uh, there's a lot of shamanistic belief systems woven into the ethnography of Baja California, and uh, a lot of it, Ron Smith and Bernie Jones and Ken Hedges all agree, and Polly Shaftesman even agree that it was sh very shamanistically oriented but not entirely, because shamanism really talks more about an individual's experience with the sacred. And these were communities of people. Their paintings, everybody is touching uh, John Harmon, the, the inventor of D-Stretch. He did a paper explaining that all the paintings in the site that he was talking about, which I think was called Santa Gertrudis Norte, and he talked about how every figure was touching another figure. So you're talking about a community of people that are interrelated with the animal world. So anyway, so my introduction, after we left Cueva Fletches, which is quite an extraordinary site in itself, we went down the canyon and then up, right up underneath from the stream bed, up the old rough trail that goes right up. And about halfway up that slope, I looked up and, oh, my God, over my head was this extraordinary panel of paintings. There's the sea lion that at the time everyone still thought it was a whale, but it's not. It's a sea lion that's 15 feet tall. In other words, most or a number of figures were about 15% larger than life. And I think that's pretty indicative of mythic storytelling. Either things are lots of times they're smaller than life and lots of times they're larger than life. And a Dr. Chen, I think I can't remember his name correctly, Chen or Chen, he's the first one that talked about how many of the important figures were larger than life, about 15%. So here are these cavalcade of animals charging. And my friend, Eleni Moore, who has studied and reproduced the paintings and separated the layers of paint and just done an extraordinary job, had a, a one-woman show at the Museum of Man, another one in Mexicali. 
and she her her joy was to pull out the figures. Mine was to figure out what are they trying to say, why are they here, why are, and so my felt like what I wanted to do was like listening to the birds in the forest when I was a kid. I wanted to hear them. I wanted to hear what they had to say, what they were thinking. And then Eleni pointed out that the animals run in one direction and then they take a switchback turn and they go in another direction and another switchback turn and eventually go out the top of the cave. Now, switchbacks is how you get up and down these tremendous passes. It's sort of the natural way to do things. What I discovered is that the end of a run, like you take all of the animals that are at the, at the base that are um, running out to the right, and one extraordinary thing is there is a black woman holding out her hand underneath the chin of an enormous red deer that has a spear in its back. And it's the cave that receives the first sunlight of the day. It is around one o'clock in the afternoon. And Cueva Pintada faces the West, but I, I'll talk about more about Pintada later. But I just wanted to go back to this the, the belief system, American belief system. Jeffrey Quilter, who is head of, uh, at the time he wrote the book, a pre-Columbian world. He edited that book with Mary Miller. He talked about that there's uniformity in a lot of basic American beliefs. For example, dualism is very, very important. And and the dualism is 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 the and in Baja California rock art, we see it in the black and red deer and in the black and red painted human figures. And what does that mean? That uh, means a tremendous amount, and, and it's a binary system. But the other thing that Quilter talked about is that the binary system is not equal. It's not perfectly balanced. So you, and like, take the red and black figures. The red figures, the, they have the black and red figures, people. The left side is black, but the head and the right side is red. Of course, there are exceptions to this, as there are in, in, in so many things. But one interesting thing. Now, does it hold true, as it does throughout much of the world, that the mythology starts out when animals were people? Therefore, you are related because all the first animals and the first plants and the first rocks and first everything were people. So you're all interrelated. And then how do you kill your relatives to eat? Because that's what you're going to have to do. How do you uh, make that okay with the, the animals that you are uh, killing? Because throughout the Americas, the, there's a belief system that you cannot kill a deer or a mountain sheep or a bear without its permission. And the permission has to come from the master of animals and he's not going to help you a bit if you break a taboo or do something. And so this, this interconnectedness is just fascinating because we know that the deer throughout the American, North American continent is considered the messenger. He talks some, in one of the chapters in his book, he talks about, or the lady that wrote that particular chapter talks about how Animals act as intermediaries, intermediaries between the worlds. There are three major worlds in all early societies. There's the sky world, the earth world, middle world, you might say, and the underworld, which is the sea and the water and the streams. It may be, each layer may have many, many layers of its own, but it doesn't matter. They're all interconnected in one way. In the, in the North America, it's the big cosmic tree, the belief that there's a giant tree with its leaves in the heavens, its branches and trunks in the middle world, and its roots in the underworld. And that is then translated and used in the Southwest more like the one pole ladder. 
The trunk of the tree is the axis. It's the center of the world. So the axis mundi or the world mundi, axis mundi, is what they believe is what's, what it's all about. And, and going around looking at rock art with Ken Hedges' field trips in northern Baja and in northern San Diego County and stuff, we'd see sometimes these single pole ladders. Well, there's a good place in, uh, around the, the Sears Point area and Gillespie Dam area, and you see these single pole ladders. Well, and what it represents is the Axis Mundi, the spirit trail, if you will, to the sacred world above or below and below. So, hmm, get down to Baja, California, you think, well, where's the trees? I don't, I don't see any trees painted here. I don't see any ladders. I don't see any ladders. <laughs> Where, what, how, do, how does this happen? And yet all these animals are all running out of the cave. They're, they're going somewhere. And I'm looking at this and I'm looking at this, and then I see a gigantic crack that goes from the bottom of the shelter in Pintada, for example, to the top of the skyline. And there are many times where people are painted in relationship to that ascent. Uh, you see it in, in um, San Gregorio One. You see it in the Serpent Cave. You see it, in the, which is very subtle, that one. There's many different sites that have it. El Bateke is probably one of the famous ones at the right-hand side. Deer are running up a crack. And all these animals sort of in, in relationship to this ascent. Where are they going? Why? All these things began to fascinate me. And I began to be fascinated with these crap, cracks that were clearly discussing the axis mundi, mundi the act ascent to the sky world above or the underworld below. That's a good place to stop <laughs> for the second segment. So much I haven't been able to add because I'm just winging it. No, no, you're doing great. Absolutely fabulous. And this uh, Axis Monday and the study of the cracks is something, of course, that uh, Eve pioneered. People didn't realize that that was something so very, very important. No, so, and in fact, I used to be teased by it. I was called the crack lady. And then the finally, lady. a few years ago, Ken came up to me and he said, well, Eve, because he published a lot of my, my early articles on, on the cracks and stuff, uh, he, he came up to me, he says, Eve, how does it feel to be going mainstream? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's great. See you in the flip-flop, gang. Thank you, Eve. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Welcome back, gang. We're on the third segment. This is episode 101. And we're blessed and honored to have Eve Ewing talking to us about great mural rock art of Baja, California, Mexico. Eve, you were talking about cracks and about... How, try to understand the uh, Axis Mundi, and that's where we left it. Please pick up the story. I think it's really important to point out that many caves have many different functions and meanings. Cueva Fletches, across from Cueva Pintada, faces the morning sun, and that is important for what it's trying to say. Cueva Pintada faces the west, which is the setting sun, and these are important concepts. And, and mind you that, that things like the sun, for example, goes through all three worlds. It comes out of the underworld on the, from the east and 
rises and goes up through the layers of the sky and comes down and then sets into the Pacific Ocean and disappears under the world. And it has all kinds of adventures and the cultures have all sorts of stories, what happens to the sun in the underworld. And then it comes up again the next day, but it goes through all of these worlds are interconnected. A moon is another one that, that will behave in this way. Sometimes an animal is either invented or they like, like in Cueva Pintada, South Gallery, which has enormous paintings. Some of them, I think, are painted at about 42 to 46 feet above the floor of the shelter. We're to this day not certain how they, they did that. You know, we don't know quite whether they use scaffolding or very, very long cane poles with paint. And anyway, Eleanor Moore is in the process of writing a book about all of that. And I hope, I know she will be covering all that kind of wonderful information. But what's interesting is that the people are all in motion. And Harry talks about this in his book. The people are all stationary and the animals are all in motion. And it's as if the, and the thing we need to remember about early societies is that everything was alive. Everything was alive. The rocks, the, the thing, you know, and the, the rocks appeared to be, have spirit in them. Steve Waller, who talks about the sound of, of echoes, has ethnography that shows that people believe that the rocks themselves were animated by spirits that would uh, would talk back and things like that. So the rocks are alive. And people are painted in them in a very stationary, permanent way. They're not in motion. Their arms are up and in a very reverent sort of manner. And their feet are flat on the ground, painted up, pointed out to the side. They're not tiptoeing, they're not flying, they're not doing, they're just there. And the animals are painted, they're rushing past them, are painted on top of these people. And I think I remember Eleni's uh, studies well enough to have that correct on the whole, in Pintada at least. Now, I'm going to focus on three air main areas of that cave, which has hundreds of, photo of paintings in it. I, I don't know how many exactly. I should know right off the tip of my tongue. Eleni would know exactly. And, okay, so what are we looking at? Animals are going out, and they're zigzagging up. Now, for example, the bottom row where there are to the left, there are a number of deer that seem to be butting into a big sea lion. And that has a person on above its a flipper. And Ron Smith considers that to be the master of, of the underworld or the master of the sea world, or at the very least the master of sea lions for sure. And they love these animals that lived in two worlds, at least like sea lions and turtles. They would live in the water and the turtle come out and lay its babies on the land. And then the elephant seal and the sea lions and the seals would live in the water, but they'd come out on the rocks and things like that. And these, this 15-foot sea lion is rather interesting. There's a shape in the cliff behind it that angles slightly to the left. And the sea lion painting, however, is painted sort of straight down. So it's as if the sheep are butting into that sea lion and trying to tilt it a little bit off so it's going to, and, it, and the person that's above him who that's coming that's by his flipper is pointing towards this gigantic crack. And the gigantic crack, then a deer is, is flowing out of or following the direction it's, and, and is about to, and touches this big crack. So it's as if, you know, and there's an early Kilviwa myth in the peninsula that talks about when the creator God first did things, one day he was taking a nap, I guess, and his assistants took over or something. And he had 
the mountain sheep go down first to the to the underworld into the o- into the ocean and the fish were uh, supposed to be up in this in this, in, the, in towards the sky well that kind of was a screw up everybody figured out so they switched it around again but the thing about a dualistic system and this is a wonderful example is in duality there's something about the other side that the opposite knows of. If you think of the yin and yang symbol, that's a perfect example. And in the in the white female side, there's a little black dot. And then in the black female side, there's a little white dot. In other words, twins are another expression of dualities. You have your elder brother and your younger brother, and they're not equal in size. They're not equal in size. And um, it's usually the younger brother that's always screwing up and causing problems and the, the older brother. So would you look then at the top of the cave? So here you have this sea lion as if he is being told that he's, he's just not doing it right. He's, he's got to aim towards that crack that's going to go up. Well, we know from young study in the Southwest that there's a belief system that if you can get a water animal to the sky world, you can bring rain. And a very interesting thought on that is among the Papago or the Tohono O'odham, that famous story, it's in University of Arizona Press. Oh gosh, I can't think of the title of the book right now. Anyway, they believe that if the, this one chief or shaman He believed that if he took a horn casing, as you know, deer have antlers and sheep have horns that have casings. If you take the empty casing off of the horn bone and you fill it up with water and you walk up a little hill and you pour it down, you can make it rain. And so there is a connection between rain and sheep and it been in the underworld, it's done all these things, and now it's up in the sky world where it's supposed to be, or the top of the mountains and things like that. So at the very peak at the top is an enormously long shaman-type figure, and he has his arms up, and he's painted red and black in the typical way, and down underneath him are these older brother and younger brother sort of figures. They're two two boys, one longer legs than another. And then he has two sheep underneath him. One has a black horn and one has a red horn. And so the stories that must have been associated with that is just enormous. And all over the Southwest, we have stories of origin myths that have the two brothers, the younger brother, the older brother, and this kind of thing. So then this peak figure is touching that crack that's come from the bottom of the cave all the way up, and it touches it. I think it's his right hand that touches it, and it goes all the way up. And the thing about it that's interesting is there's a little plant that grows in a crack. It's a little tiny banyan tree, one of their banyan ficus palmas. And it survives when the summer rains come. And the summer rains bring the monsoon season. Now, rain is so, I'll never forget, like on the Melling expedition, we went down in a year where we were told it hadn't rained sometimes for six, sometimes 10 years. It hadn't rained. And there was nothing for these poor animals hardly to eat. We could never camp at a water hole because those were the, the sheep and deer, and, I mean, pardon me, and the cattle had already grazed. So we'd have to go someplace in between the next water hole. But water holes were wonderful places. There was always a green mesquite tree or something by them, and there were some birds singing in the morning. And, and then when you get to Cueva Pintada, in the old days, long before the goats overgrazed the highlands above, and all these rocks now have covered the tepetates, and the tepetates were just smooth surfaces of volcanic tuff, 
that layers of volcanic uh, tuff where the stream cut through and left like little bathtubs that were cooked up one to another. And you could sit in this wonderful bathtub with the water flowing over your shoulder as the little stream goes by and look at the cliffs and the trees and hear the birds. And it was magical. And I realized water is so magical in these incredible, dry, difficult deserts. So I got more and more interested in that and more and more interested in the Indians in Cueva Pintada. Why are they going there? And it seems like the deer are messengers and so are the sheep of these stationary people. There's, as I say, a black woman in the lower left part of the Southern Gallery. And she has the head of the deer in the palm of her hand. She's guiding it. There's a, there's a stream of deer painted across near below where the female human figures are too. So you get this feeling that there's an interconnection between female increase and, and animal increase. It's all interrelated and they all benefit from the same, uh, same things. So you have a system where now, there is a, she has got this deer, and he has an enormous spear in him. He's a beautiful big deer with a beautiful big rack. And she is gently guiding his face towards a crack that goes up and over the top of the, and out the, the, the cave. Again, suggesting that that's where they're supposed to go and what they're supposed to be doing. And the story I tell myself with no, evidence is that the, the the thing about Cueva Pintada is it's a covenant. In fact, my favorite paper I've ever written is called A Covenant with Nature. It's volume 10 for the Museum of Man's Rock Art Paper Series. And a covenant is sort of a relationship with promises. You know, you do this for me and I'll do this for you. And, and it's defined by obligation and commitment and stuff like that, if you look up on the Internet what the meaning of the word is. But that's different from a contract because they are relational and personal, like many vows in, in, that are in the, in the Bible, too. Marriage. Y- yeah, marriage is, is definitely one. A covenant or, or a covenant a between covenant. A, pe- yeah. people and their, a people and their God. Okay, a people in their God. And this covenant with nature was all about how to bring down the rain. You see, Baja California is in a very difficult spot. It's too far south for reliable winter rains. It's too far north for reliable summer tropical rains. And sometimes it gets one, sometimes it gets the other, sometimes it gets both, and then they'll separate and there'll be 10 years with no rain. Now, Right across the Gulf, even you can on on hot summer days, you can see the the clouds of of thunderstorms because that rain system that is birthed out of the Sierra Occidental, the Western Sierra, the big Sierras of, of, of the mainland there, creates these, helps create these monsoons that then travel into the Hopi Zuni country of the Southwest. What happens in Baja California, and the reason it's the only place in all of Mexico that is not both agricultural, uh, that doesn't have some kind of agriculture, is because of what happens to Baja California. And what is that? The Pacific Ocean, the Japanese current that goes from Japan around Alaska and all the way down and then lands and points out to the Pacific again when it hits uh, Punta Eugenia, it can, the shifting of the currents or the shifting of the winds can suddenly happen and turn off the monsoon season in Baja California. Now, the monsoon season is absolutely fascinating. A monsoon occurs when you have the correct temperature, the correct pressure, and the correct something, you know, it, it has to be four days in a row. And then suddenly the sky opens up and you suddenly have this huge thunderstorms happening. The monsoon has come. It's extraordinary. And it's been written about in a number of, of locations. And then it ends just as fast. Elenise was there 
during one of these horrendous rainstorms, and, and she and her guide, they had to pull their sleeping bags a little higher up. The road. There's no good place to, to, to be out of the, the storm when it comes. Don't the vaqueros call it el cambio? The, the, yeah, the change, the, yeah. the shift. Yeah, you can feel it. And what happens is okay, in the fall, a cambio comes and it, yes, el cambio. It's, it, it turns off and it turns on very fast. Yeah, yeah. So e-viewing, what would you have, what would you say to thematically close our interaction today? I would say that trying to learn to look at the world from from the Indian's point of view is vital in trying to understand it and what it's trying to say and how different it is from our world. We don't believe that every rock, every tree, every cloud can can be spoken to or prayed to. So we have a whole different system. And their system is a circular system. Which right. Reciprocity. Reciprocity, right. System of reciprocity and and circular time is vital to understand and how different it is from linear time. Amen. Until fifth century BC, the Greeks were into okay. circular time. And circular time means death follows life and life follows death. Round and round and round. And round it goes. That was fabulous. Eve, Eve, I really appreciate your time, and I think we uh, scratched the surface. That's it. Just barely. That's, oh, my just God. Barely. <laughs> I, just, I can't even us, think. Us, There's us. so many things I wanted to say and never did. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway. We'll do, we'll, do, we'll do part two. See you all on the flip-flop, gang. See you next week. God bless. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster and Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. .com.